Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Earlier this summer, President Biden said, if we end up in a war, a real shooting war with a major power, it's going to be as a consequence of a cyber breach of great consequence. Cybersecurity, or better, cyber insecurity, is a reality of life in the digital age. We all worry about being hacked, about online raids on our credit cards and bank accounts, about losing personal or even corporate secrets to online bandits. But war? What does that word even mean in cyberspace? If a government uses digital tools to disrupt a power grid or destroy nuclear research facilities, are those acts of war? What if a government allows a digital raid on another country's corporations or sensitive personal data? Could that lead to war or is that just espionage in the 21st century? For that matter, who makes the rules of potential cyber warfare, if there even are any? And which countries are already cyber powers to be reckoned with and who wants to join the club? My guest today has spent his career thinking about more sophisticated versions of those questions. It's not a stretch to say that he was present at the creation of British cyber capabilities. Marcus Willett spent 33 years at the UK's government communications headquarters, which is his country's signals intelligence and cybersecurity agency. Welcome, Marcus. Hello, and thank you very much for this opportunity to talk with you. Let's skip the warm up, um, be impolite, and go directly to the punchline. As more and more of our reality goes online, cyber risk inevitably rises. Isn't something as dramatic as Biden's shooting war almost inevitable, on purpose or by mistake? Well, uh, that is the the, the massive question. I I think um, uh, because of of my background, uh, I think I might just start by stating something obvious and it's implied in your question, uh, and that is... uh, the massive speed, scale, and reach uh, that cyberspace, digital connectivity has enabled for people around the world to do good things uh, about the spread of ideas, about connectivity, about how we do our day-to-day, how we run our day-to-day lives. And indeed, hasn't the recent pandemic showed how much we've come to rely on Uh, cyberspace uh, for keeping in touch with loved ones and just doing our day-to-day jobs. Um, But if that's all the good stuff, uh, yes, unfortunately, as your question implies, there's a horrible flip side. Uh, That flip side is it enables the same speed, scale and reach for people to do bad things, uh, whether that's criminal groups uh, trying to extort money out of companies or the global financial system, whether that's criminal groups seeking to do, you know, sexual predation, whether that's uh, terrorists trying to radicalize uh, online, or whether that's states seeking to do malign activity, or states seeking to spy, or states seeking to gain strategic advantage. Now, all of that is happening. And uh, yeah, I think what President Biden is is alluding to is something I've described previously, what I consider to be the biggest risk in all of that stuff I've just described, which is states trying to do disruption activity, maybe to an election, 
maybe to signal something, uh, you know, both of which, you know, the Russians have tried to interfere in elections. They've certainly done a lot of signaling uh, to the Ukraine and Estonia and Georgia in, in the past, trying to, but all the time trying to do it at a threshold below what they would think we would interpret as being uh, an act of war. The trouble is, uh, that's, yeah, that's the perception of the person who's being uh, hacked uh, that is really important there, and that way can lead to a misunderstanding. I think there's another dimension to this, which is all this point about critical national infrastructure. So not surprising that you know, Biden may have alighted on critical national infrastructure as a key point. Um, it's, this is a really difficult one because a state's critical national infrastructure is, if it was a conflict, a, you know, a legitimate target, depending on what you mean by critical national infrastructure. Uh, but I'm afraid you know, people who are involved in cyber operations know you can't do that from a standing start. It can take months, it can take years. So a lot of your preliminary operations to do the reconnaissance or the positioning on those networks to understand what's going on um, has to be done in peacetime. Again, a state may be doing that sort of stuff and be misunderstood as something more um, uh, immediate. And then you get to something like the solar winds hack, uh, ostensibly uh, for the purpose of uh, espionage. Um, but, you know, it, it can look like espionage, but it could get to places on your critical national infrastructure which could be repurposed for something else. So how do you respond to that? So I think what Biden may be alluding to is, you know, states who think they're trying to do espionage or reconnoiter uh, or, or disrupt at thresholds below warfare, miscalculating, and it either being perceived as something more or it accidentally turning into something more through malware that misbehaves or so, something like that. I think that's the biggest risk. So I'm not surprised uh, that President Biden is highlighting that. Uh, I'm sure we'll get on to the implications of what we try and do about that in a second. Well, that, there's so many threads to pull on. Maybe the one I'll start with uh, is the rules and the norms, because clearly, as you just said, it's in the eye of the beholder, perhaps. Oh, I didn't mean to go to war. Oh, you just shut down my hospital system, perhaps by mistake, but you did it. Um, so early this year at the G7 meeting, the foreign ministers called on Russia and China to bring their activities into line with, and I use quotes, international norms, unquote. Almost the same time, China described the United States as a champion of cyber attacks. It sounds a bit like the Wild West, uh, but much more dangerous. So the obvious question is, are there norms or rules? Uh, firstly, yes, there are uh, norms of behavior uh, in cyberspace. Uh, agreed internationally uh, among states, but they're, they're non-binding. Non uh, and I think uh, that they're, they're so general in some instances to uh, be open to interpretation. I think that, you know, the debate is whether uh, we need new international agreements, uh, new international law. Um, I, I have argued in the past, as have has the State Department and as has the Foreign and Development Office here in the UK, that this isn't about new international law. This is about uh, the application of existing international law, because in the end, this is all about an effect that is achieved in cyberspace. 
which is covered by uh, existing international law. Um, I am starting to worry uh, that there's something more uh, that is needed. And we've seen uh, the US President Biden calling out uh, the Chinese and the Russians for what he's describing as reckless and irresponsible cyber behavior. We've seen uh, the UK in announcing some of its uh, cyber capabilities saying, well, we have been and will continue to be a responsible cyber actor. But I think that term, responsible cyber activity, is not, has not been properly defined. And I think that's what is beholden on the international community at the moment, is to try and get to the root of what behaving responsibly in cyberspace really means. The way it has sort of got to the, the crux of what behaving responsibly uh, on the high seas means, or by, you know, with the use of missiles as, you know, as opposed to barrel bombs or, you know, cluster munitions. So there's something needed there. I want to pull on the word international, words international community. The international community is not behaving much like a community these days. So it raises the obvious question about assuming that we do need better definition of norms, perhaps of rules, where, how, who? Uh, is this a U.S.-China deal? Is it a U.S.-China-Europe deal? Is it the U.N.? Is there a framework where this could happen? Or do we need to think of a new framework, a new place, a new, a new club? So that's, again, really interesting. Uh, and, and I think, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it's easy for me to, say, me to say, you know, all of those things is probably part of the answer. But I think finding something for the U.S. and China uh, to need to talk about in terms of cyberspace, uh, perhaps something that uh, the U.S. and Russia needs to talk about uh, in terms of misbehavior in cyberspace is a good place to start, something that they might both all have a vested interest in. That, you know, that's difficult, especially when I tell you that I think the answer might be something to do with cyber criminality. Um, but, you know, cyber criminals are obviously uh, extorting money out of all sorts of organizations around, uh, around the world. And yes, those operating from Russian territory uh, may not be doing anything against Russia. And it may be an issue that Russia, the Russian state is turning a blind eye. But I think it's no coincidence, that, you know, let alone uh, the fact there was the colonial pipeline attack and the Kaseya attack, that President Biden chose that as the subject to raise with President Putin, because there is a subject where you can see uh, it's, it's less uh, controversial than some of the state activity that's going on, uh, and therefore is a subject that, you know, that you can find room for that dialogue. I think the same can be done with China. And it's, this is all about starting that dialogue in a place where, you know, everybody has a uh, a vested interest and won't feel too threatened by the conversation. So I think cybercrime is a good place to start. And it's sort of all the different fora uh, you've talked about. And through that dialogue, work out what happens next. Uh, as I say, I, I think this needs to lead to a, a conversation about responsible cyber activity. There is a wonderful cartoon, actually a New Yorker cartoon, showing two dogs typing at a computer with the caption, on the internet, no one knows you are a dog. That's in effect the attribution problem. Attributing cyber attack is not straightforward, you know better than I. Is it country X or country Y, rogue actor disguised as country Z, or just plain criminal? 
like in so many other spaces, the internet has lowered the barriers to entry in this business. I guess the question is how important is it and how possible is it to identify who perpetrates a cyber attack and who does that identification? Well, uh, I'm going to pick two things. I'm going, to, I'm going to do attribution and then I will also pick up your low barrier of entry point, both of which are really important. I think the important thing around attribution is that the idea has persisted that it's difficult to the point of impossibility to confidently attribute somebody who's intruding on your networks. So I don't think that's true. I think states can attribute confidently in many cases uh, who is intruding on their networks. What they have historically found difficult is revealing that information, talking about that information in a way that doesn't threaten things that, you know, I mean, particularly intelligence sources and methods that they consider to be, uh, have considered to be more important. Uh, I think it's a really important point there, which is a threshold can be crossed when a state will decide uh, actually it's more important to reveal that attribution than protect those sources and methods. It's also true that states over the last five years have got more used to attributing, you know, cyber, I'm trying not to use the word attack, but I will, uh, cyber, uh, cyber attacks in ways that can protect what's going, you know, what they really care about. I think it's also important that they've done that collectively. Liberal democracies have together, uh, you know, attributed states like Russia and China in a way that sends a very strong message of the sharing of information between them, which I, you know, I think that's powerful in itself. I think there's another really important point here, and that is in, in the US, the UK and elsewhere, there has grown a cybersecurity in commercial sector that through close sharing of information with governments and, and a lot of through its own expertise have become very adept at confidently being able to attribute uh, the, the people behind cyber intrusions themselves, as happened uh, with the solar winds hack in the US. That is a strength of the US system. It's not a weakness that the NSA didn't do it. You don't want NSA crawling all over Microsoft, uh, you know, cloud providers. Um, it's, it's best if the private sector is doing that. Uh, so there's a really good example of the private sector in the US being able to detect and attribute and therefore disrupt uh, a, a sophisticated, ooh, uh, I've used the word sophisticated, but I'll stick with it, uh, state cyber operation by the Russians. Now, the barrier to entry, uh, I think this is a really important point. Uh, and the, the amount of cyber capability out there uh, that is available uh, on the open market, either, either stuff that's been developed to help, you know, ethical hacking or pen testing with the cooperation of uh, a network provider that you can, you can find online uh, or the careless proliferation of capabilities by states. Mm, I can't not mention Israel and the Pegasus software that the NSO uh, sold to people who perhaps it shouldn't have been sold to. I, so I think that um, that risk of sophisticated state capabilities ending up in the wrong hands, uh, states with no qualms about how they might use it, 
uh, criminals with no qualms about how they might use it, and worst of all, terrorists uh, with very little qualm about how they would uh, use it. Uh, I think there are really uh, big risks there. It, by the way, is another subject you might find everybody has a vested interest uh, in talking about and reaching some sort of international agreement about how you might think about the non-proliferation of state cyber capabilities. My worry in that regard is that something really bad might have to happen uh, before states sit down. One can imagine this same conversation decades ago in the nuclear space. And if someone had gotten a hold of a weapon, had used that weapon, then in fact, we probably would have advanced much faster and in much more positive, immediate ways to stop proliferation before it got as wide as it is. Here we're in a space, in some ways not dissimilar. IISS, with you as a principal author, recently did a study that looked at and tried to quantify and qualify uh, cyber power. Uh, you listed 15 countries as having significant cyber capability of which the Americans have are in a tier by themselves. Almost none of the names on the list surprised me. What surprised me was 15. That's a lot of players for a relatively early stage of this. It sets up a lot of potential competition. The question, is there any way to slow the cyber race? So firstly, um, I should be clear that that's 15 states that we assessed rather than thinking that they were uh, the 15 most capable uh, in fact, we deliberately, this was partly to test the methodology we were using. Uh, we assessed, um, I think it's about eight of the most capable states, generally accepted, and then deliberately chose a bunch of states that people wouldn't think uh, were amongst the most sophisticated to really test that methodology. But when doing that, consciously leaving out uh, some of the more sophisticated states which might indeed amount to about uh, 15. So uh, the, the spirit behind your question absolutely um, remains. Um, it's an important qualification, but it makes it even worse. The pool is pretty crowded already. Yeah, and, and the point, I mean, you know, as I was, that, that's a point about your point around uh, that low barrier to entry is it doesn't really take that much to buy uh, or procure somehow offensive capability if you're a state who wants to develop uh, your own national cyber, offensive cyber uh, uh, capability. Um, so what to do about it? Um, I, uh, I think uh, it's unrealistic to think you can simply stop states aspiring to get uh, an offensive cyber capability uh, I think it's more realistic to think about how that offensive cyber capability should be operated responsibly. And of course, it is extremely beholden on states uh, to ensure they're paying as much attention to their own cybersecurity and global cybersecurity, developing protections, developing resilience uh, of uh, networks and organizations to these sorts of intrusions. Um, it's going to be a really complicated balancing act uh, over which I, I'm, I think some sort of international agreement is going to be uh, needed. I mean, there are all sorts of measures that states can take if somebody does misbehave and have taken, uh, whether that's economic sanctions, diplomatic demarches, criminalizing those people responsible, attributing them uh, as we've discussed, which, you know, I, I don't want to underestimate uh, the effect of 
shaming a state, uh, you know, who has conducted a particular cyber intrusion. And yeah, uh, I mean, I'm back to the attribution point here. If you're a state like Russia and China, you can very easily say, no, it really wasn't us as confident as you as somebody who has said it was you. But of course, if it was you, you do know it was you and you know that you've been detected and attributed and that's going to send uh, send messages. So there are lots of there are lots of things states can do today. My question is this um, name and shame as a strategy and, and it is a strategy. The obvious we need a case study. So we've had the interference in American elections, the last several elections, um, and one can debate precisely who did what and when, but it's quite clear. It's accepted widely. We've named and shamed uh, repeatedly. So what? Has it stopped? Has it reduced? Has it made, has it sent the message that that's unacceptable behavior, presumably to Moscow, to Beijing, to Tehran, and some other places? Um, or did they just say, eh, We'll do it again next time. I will come back to the point that I, I, I do think there is an effectiveness in naming and shaming um, because especially when it's done collectively, and you said about uh, US elections, well, there's plenty to say about UK elections, French elections, German elections, uh, and many others. Uh, and we're all saying it uh, together, which says, uh, hold on, if we're Russia or China and, and you know, those states operate singly uh, in cyberspace. We're talking to a bunch of people who work together uh, on, you know, detection, attributing, and ooh, and therefore I might conclude they act together when it comes to responding uh, to, perhaps even uh, using uh, cyber operations. Uh, that uh, has uh, an uh, effect, I would contend, but has it? Um, so... Well, the jury is still out. Uh, did the Russians try and interfere in the last presidential election the way they tried in 2016? Uh, no, but what was the reason behind that? Uh, was it because they were called out before? Was it because they were deterred by uh, what US Cyber Command did in the midterms to the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg to signal, uh, you know, hands off? Uh, did the Russians think they didn't need to? Did they think they didn't need to try any disinformation campaign because it was all being done for them uh, by various uh, <laughs> of you know, uh, the campaigns that were going on in the you know in the US itself? Uh, that's a really really difficult question to answer. Uh, all I will note is why have the Russians? It, you know, it, there are some hints that as a result of Biden talking to Putin. Uh, the Russians may be thinking about trying to do something about it. I think we've just got to give that one chance to run. Um, but at the moment, I reckon there is an effect of saying it was you, it's got to stop, uh, especially when it comes to cyber criminality emanating from your territory. But I'm sure Biden talked more about more than that with Putin. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programmes. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. You mentioned in passing, and it is an extremely important topic, cybersecurity, because that's part of this entire equation. Can you protect yourself? Can you protect your national infrastructure? 
uh, can you stop the efforts to penetrate? I think states and organizations uh, shouldn't assume they can protect uh, entirely their networks. I think they should assume that an intrusion by a sophisticated actor, particularly a sophisticated state actor, uh, or even, uh, sadly, nowadays, the most sophisticated cyber criminal group, uh, can get through uh, whatever they do. But uh, those sorts of intrusions and attacks are rare. Um, there is the, the vast majority of stuff that is done in cyberspace by criminals and states even is at a threshold, but basic cyber hygiene of which, you know, having the right sort of password, ensuring you're, you've got, you know, a multi-factor authentication on who's accessing, accessing the network, uh, or making, making sure the patching of your networks is up to date, that will start the, stop the vast majority of stuff. So this isn't a, this isn't about despairing because somebody can get through and therefore forgetting, you know, deciding you don't need to concentrate on your cybersecurity, your basic cybersecurity. Governments and organizations really, really do. And the theory goes that if they do, they will stop 90 to 95 percent of the stuff that's out there. But of course, there is another massive implication here for that 5 percent uh, that could still get through. It means they've got to think about um, their data, their information and their networks in a different way. They've got to think about how they recover and they've got to think about their resilience. How can they ensure, for example, that a cyber criminal group can't encrypt all of their data in a way that uh, they can't uh, recover it? So where do they store it? Do they duplicate uh, do they have, you know, several different backups? You know, how are they managing their data? And, you know, absolutely fundamental point here. This isn't, this isn't about a technical thing uh, that the chairman of the board can leave to their chief information and security officer. Because in the end, as many cyber intrusions have proved for many companies, uh, this becomes about bottom line uh, financial performance and becomes about bottom line reputation of the company. So it is a a chairman of the board, CEO with the main board uh, issue, just as it is uh, for prime ministers and presidents with their national security councils. Uh, it's not left for their officials uh, in the depths of, uh, you know, the White House or the Pentagon or here, uh, cabinet office. Last question. What keeps you up at night as you, th <laughs> as you think about the future in this space? So, um, what does it, what, I mean, I've been through, I think some of the risks, um, uh, I think what I'm aware in the middle of the night desperately needs to happen, I'll put it that way if you don't mind, is that um, there is a history in, in the UK in particular, but I think the same is true in the US, of saying very little about your own offensive cyber capabilities, how you are thinking about using them, all because they're sensitive capabilities, you're worried you might give away secrets. Uh, I think that needs to change because until states like the US and the UK and uh, some of the other states in that list of countries that I you mentioned that we covered in that capabilities assessment, 
until those states start saying a bit more, and they can do it, I believe, without giving away you know, national secrets, um, it's, it's almost impossible to arrive at that answer as to what behaving responsibly in cyberspace really means. Because unless they can demonstrate uh, that they, they know what that means and they abide by what they say acting responsibly, offensively really means, we can't really get that conversation going internationally. So I think it is beholden on the UK and the UK and uh, the UK and the US and other, to use that phrase, like-minded states to agree amongst themselves as a first step. And this goes back to one of your earlier questions. That's the first step. Like-minded countries need to agree what behaving responsibly in cyberspace really means. And to do that, they're going to have to be a bit more open about some of their strategies and policies for the use of offensive cyber. It makes enormous amount of sense. It is exactly what happened during the Cold War. Both sides understood the capability of the other side and hence didn't cross those lines. Every now and then got a little close. And there were all sorts of skirmishes all over the globe, but never got to that trigger point because they did understand what happens if they crossed it. Uh, so maybe we can learn from history. Uh, I'm sure we can. Um, the only caveat I will put, if you don't mind, is uh, quite often people make that analogy and therefore conclude there is some sort of deterrent, strategic deterrent answer around cyber the way there was uh, around nuclear capabilities, uh, yet the two are different. And it is important to understand the differences between how a cyber capability might be used and declared uh, uh, compared with how historically that's happened with nuclear capabilities. So there are good lessons to learn. There are also some false friends in that analogy. Well, as Mark Twain said, or is alleged to have said, history never repeats itself, but it does occasionally rhyme. <laughs> very good. Thank you, Marcus, very much. Appreciate it uh, and learned a lot. We'll do it again. Oh, thank, you. thank you very much. And uh, I must, make, must say, it, 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 questions were great. And it's also a privilege to be able to talk to the, the Talberg Foundation. I, I greatly admire the work that you do. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.